Welcome to the Woke Blokes Podcast, hosted by Nick Sutherland from MindFit and Ryan Hassan from the Center for Healing. Let's get into today's episode. Well, you're a customer of mine, Nick, and we've become mates through through that, really, isn't it? That's well, the connection. Let, let me do the intro, Matt. Yeah, <laughs> oh, sorry. So, has the thing actually started now? I'm just Are you ready? Volume off. We're about to start now, mate. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Woke Blokes podcast. Ryan Hassan from the Centre for Healing here, joined as always by Nico from MindFit. And today we have the chisel-chested hobo, Maddie Pitt. Uh, Nick, I will throw over to you to introduce chisel-chested hobo. All right. Well, he's also known as the Sultan of Semantics. Um, a wordsmith extraordinaire. The superlatives can just keep flowing for this greatest man. One of the one one of the the, the modern wonders, I think, of humanity. The eighth wonder of the um, world. Yeah, pretty much. And and a man that I consider. You probably may not know this, but I do consider him to be a dear friend. Uh, and there's many reasons. A, he introduced me to the dynamic duo of Gavin Hawks. Um, the, the the Rose of Doran and uh, one of the, the most beautiful men you would have ever met was um, uh, Hocking, Neil Hocking, uh, who sadly passed away. But we've also had some late boozy nights, um, followed by some very early morning tea times um, in the in the golf uh, tournaments that Matty organises um, in his in his day job. Uh, so, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, please, and, and strap yourselves in because this is going to be a long one. Um, we're not going to be lost for words. Well, Thank you, Nick. That, that is the most gruesome introduction I've ever had, and you've <laughs> you've poured a lot of pressure on me. And luckily, uh, my ego can cope with the demands that you've put on me. But uh, I think yes. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I really well, appreciate it. Mental Health Commission CEO, we've had uh, international Dharma teacher and author, we've had um, big Gus Warren from Triple M Sydney and Gotcha for Life, we've had oh, we've had Taylor Harris as well, the AFL women's star with the statue. What are you saying, time for some balance now? Is that <laughs> where you're heading with this? <laughs> we, had, we had to drop the bar, we're sailing, we're, we're, we're like Icarus, we're too close to the sun. <laughs> you just undone that beautiful intro, Nick. <laughs> I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity to, to balance out the show for you guys. Thank you. It's, a, it's an absolute pleasure for me. So um, I'm we're calling him the chisel-chested hobo listeners because he, uh, he's been a man on a mission for the past 12 months. He's committed to a daily... Uh, regiment or regime of um, of doing push-ups every day, and he's he's just ticked over the twelve-month goal. So the chest is looking in fine order. That the belly um, uh, has has skipped a day. Well, you got to have that balance, like with your you intro, do. and then bringing him down a peg just then. Uh, yeah. Maddie, why are the push-ups every day? And why a year? Like I've I've seen on my on my Facebook feed, I get tagged in a bit. Like I'm doing twenty-five push-ups a day for twenty-five days, but three hundred and sixty-five. Mm-hmm. That's a bloody lot. How many are you doing a day? Well. 55 Ooh, now okay wow that's it just 55 so that's a small number once you've built up to it it just takes a couple of minutes every day why am i doing it well for three decades i've been saying oh, i've got to get a bit fitter i've got to get you know i was very fit when i was 18 19 20 played a lot of sport and then as life goes on you kind of lose the thread of that and uh i've tried and bits and pieces as we all do we do a bit we fail we start we stop and um then uh and we'll probably nick might be intending to get to this but um uh, my beautiful wife sally passed away 
18, 20 months ago. And I promised her that I would be in shape to be healthy so that our three beautiful kids have got a dad. Um, you know, it's diabolical to think losing two of us would just leave these kids as orphans. So there is a pretty significant motivation behind, you know, I used to have a few gaspers here and there at the golf events and, you know, do unhealthy things and not eat particularly well and be a bit overweight. So the push-ups is just part of a, a broader plan where I'm trying to look after the kids. And one of those things is making sure that I'm in reasonable shape. You know, if I get sick, then it's a schmozzle. I, I want to be fit and healthy. Uh, and I promised Sally I would take care of myself and make sure that I'm in good shape so that our kids have got a dad for as long as possible. So, so yeah, the, the interesting part about the push-ups was for 30 years I've tried and, and stopped and tried and stopped. And then what I did was I put the push-ups in a graph on a spreadsheet. And that was my little trigger to never stop doing it. Mm. Every day I had to put a, a thing on the graph of how many push-ups we were doing, I was doing. And if I didn't fill the graph in, I felt terrible. So in the past, I would do push-ups. It will last a week. I'm sure we've all done it. I'm going to the gym. I'm getting a gym membership. How long does it last? Um, you guys look very still. Has this dropped out? Uh, the audio is still coming through fine. Okay. It's just the video. You guys, oh, we dropped out. No, no. It's just the, the, you still got me? Yeah, the video is just... Just the video catch. Video lag, video lag. Okay, cool. So, yeah, I'm sure we've all done it where we got a gym membership and didn't kind of keep going, and it's that sort of thing. And with me, the Excel spreadsheet where I had to put a thing in every day has meant I've kept going for a year. So now it's just that's a daily thing. It's pretty easy. Put it in your routine. It's a bit of a, it's a, bit of a play out of the Tommy Hafey handbook, really, isn't it? Oh, how many did he do? Oh, and man. Gary Player. I think Gary Player does 500 a day really and sit-ups as well oh yeah i saw gary player yeah. um at that uh tigers woods course that he opened the other week the pain whatever yeah, it's called and it, but they were yeah. doing the nearest the pin and there was jack nicholas and gary player and the four guys playing and yeah that's, gary player still looked in tremendous shape in... and he'd be 80 something he's in yeah. great and i guess there's 60 years of uh, 500 push-ups a day this, uh, <laughs> so I'll, get, I'll get back to you in 60 years and see how we're going <laughs> Talking off air, and Matty was saying that he he's not a client of mine, but um, um, but we do have um, some amazing conversations and, and very similar beliefs and um, philosophies, I guess. And what Matty's talking about is something I talk about with my clients. That, so my my work, Matty, is based off these five fundamentals, and the first one is priorities and prioritizing your mental, physical, and nutritional health or your overall well-being. Because as you've just pointed out, you can't be there for other people if you're not okay yourself so the old in case of emergency on a flight put the gas mask on yourself first so then you can help your kids and other people around you so it's great to see that you're uh, embodying that and um yeah and, and taking that time to care for yourself you know it was interesting for me nico in my life i was pretty irresponsible when I only had me to worry about. Yeah. And that's okay, that's cool. And then after I met Sally and decided to have a family and, and we had kids, I transformed as a person because here I was responsible for other people and that really changed me. And I've been able to live in a different way and achieve different things that just I didn't do in my first life uh, simply because I had responsibility for these people. And that's what this is now. This little bit of fitness is, is easy. It was hard before, but I got I got three beautiful kids to look after, and it's pretty easy to sort of have that self discipline because of that totally. responsibility. Have you heard that quote that um, 
we have two lives and the second one begins when we realise we only have one. I haven't heard that particular quote, but I'm a great fan of Colin Hay's masterpiece, Waiting for My Real Life to Begin, mm. which is a person who hasn't jumped the hurdle yet and is is sitting around waiting for things to happen in life. And, and I guess I guess it's a song about learning to be a proactive person in your life who makes things happen rather than waiting for things to happen. But it, yeah, it is, it is a reminder that you only go once around, you've only got one crack at it, go and make your life the one that you want it to be. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I think it's a beautiful thing that we can come into that understanding that realization and i think what you're speaking about is a maturing it's it's a you know we evolve we grow when that responsibility is put before us and what's that epictetus quote about um don't pray for an easy life pray for the capacity to endure a difficult one or something so it's it's that that don't just hope for things to go smoothly we we really uh, we don't want to go chasing adversity but when it when it meets us uh, we have to dig deep and the new metaphor ship is safe in harbor but you know that's not what ships are built for so when the the storms roll in a lot of people will take that reactive way and go and hide and just wish and want and hope that they come out of it but then there's other people that stand up and say bring it on all right this is i'm going to navigate my way through this storm i didn't ask for it, i didn't want it but I've got two options. I can duck and weave or I can stand here and deliver. And that's probably how, how many of those challenges we've met in the past as well that builds that resilience. Because I was, I was mm. thinking about this literally yesterday. I'm like, life's just a series of challenges, <laughs> right? Mm. And it's like, to, 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 and most people, I think when we, and I've been here before, you, you Nick, you've called yourself, I think, a comfort slob in your past life, you know? Yeah. And that's like trying to create a life that where we don't have any of these challenges and no problems no issues and that kind of thing but it's impossible life's just a series of these problems or issues and like by, by trying to be comfortable all the time and you know sitting on the couch and have an easy life that ends up being a hard life because you end up going oh fuck i should have done so much more with my life so i think the you're know, talking about resilience i'd love your input here maddie um especially with going through such a catastrophic event as losing your wife um you know how do we build that resilience or how did you build resilience through that period Oh, that's a good question. Look, I think I was fortunate because I'd been through a few other challenges in life and so I was well-placed to do as best I could in supporting Sally and our family and going through what we did. And I think a bunch of that is having a... For me, it was having a solid philosophical foundation about who I am as a person, what my priorities are in life, what's important to me and how to approach life. So... Uh, Nico, golf's a great metaphor. You know, I love golf because of some of the philosophical underpinnings. They they suit me. Mm-hmm. So uh, for, for for the non-golfers listening, and Ryan, I'm not sure if you're a golfer. I'm, you I'm a golfer. Golf courses. <laughs> there you go. So so you know, the etiquette of golf is based upon the principle of consideration for other people. Other people will follow you on the golf course. Let's let's leave the thing in better condition than what we found it. It's it's kind of like a planet, isn't it? You know, you, if you can leave the joint in a better place than what you found it, uh, way than what you found it, then the people behind you will have something to enjoy. When you're on a golf course, repair two divots if you make one, so on and so forth. So all of the all of the etiquette is based around consideration for others. Then the game is 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 self-regulating. You you you, you call penalties on yourself, so it requires character. It requires you to look at yourself honestly in the mirror and make a decision about what sort of person you are. Am I going to cheat? 
Am I going to cheat myself? Am I going to lie? Am I going to be honest? Am I going to tell the truth? What are my values? Is it more important to me that my opponents and my playing partners and my friends respect me for my character and my choices and decisions on the golf course, or will they respect me more because I win, no matter what I do to win? Mm. So, you know, I love golf because philosophically it asks these questions. If you if you want to, it gives you the opportunity to learn these things. It's very uh, character so revealing, isn't it, Manny? But it's character defining as well. But you, 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 you when you first yeah, start you, off, like you were my first. Matty runs Social Golf Australia, and so I just got into golf. I was a late starter, um, and none of my mates played golf, so I just googled social golf and up pops social golf and spoke to Matty, and he took me along to. Um, Cranburn, I think, was my first event. Cranny. Nice Wilson. course. Beautiful golf course. With the beautiful Stuart Wilson um, was my playing partner. And so I'd never I'd never been exposed to it. I'd sort of you know, heard about it here and there. But, yeah, the, the, the philosophy of it and the depth of it and the... Um, you've got to be taught so much because you don't know and so you go out there and you are very ignorant in a literal sense and and you have to develop you have to learn you're going to make mistakes you're going to pick your ball up and move it but if someone judges and condemns and criticizes you and berates you that's not going to help you where they can come and pull you to the side and go hey mate next time so for me, golf uh, with you, mate. I used to take clients onto the golf course because it was so character revealing. Yeah. It would it would bring to the surface their cognitive distortions, their anger, their frustration. You can't wear a mask or a facade out there. It's just character it's is revealing. That's why so many business deals are done on a golf course. Because like, if I'm going to get in business with this person, I need to see them play golf. I need to know if they're moving their ball, cracking the shits. That's right. You know. That's right. So now, so to answer your question, one of the key things about golf is learning about. Uh, what you can control and what you can't control and differentiating between the two and and then being in the moment that's very important you can't worry about the last shot you played whether it was good or bad and you can't worry about what's coming ahead you play your best golf when you just focus on being in the moment which you know it's, it's kind of it's buddhist it's beautiful uh, and things happen and in golf unlike other sports it's just you and the ball no one else has any input into what happens to that ball in tennis, someone's got to hit it to you. In football games, there's other people tackling you. In golf, it's just you and the ball. No one else's actions or thoughts or anything have any influence over what happens. It, it, so you're responsible for everything. So, Nico, to get to what you said, golf gives us the opportunity to learn these things. We can take the opportunity or not. And then one of the great lessons for me was understanding what you can and can't control. So you can control, you know, how you hit the ball and how you manage yourself and how you see things and things like that. And then you can't control the weather and the, the slope of the ground and a, a whole lot of external factors. So getting back to your question about coping with all the trauma and difficult things over the last three or four years, that those ideas, in particular, worrying about what you can control and letting go of what you can't control, were really central to navigating through what, can be almost impossible. Um, that sounds and, like yeah, you guys talk- That sounds like the um, you know, in Buddhism again. They talk about the source of all suffering is attachment. So, what I'm hearing with you is it's just um, um, and, and but the law of nature is that everything has an expiry date. Everything's impermanent. So, mm. in, in, in if you're a Buddhist monk in Bhutan or 
to bed or somewhere, you, you live a very a life of non-attachment because they don't get married. And they don't, but those of you and I who are in Western civilization, we do create attachment. So I think we have to start learning when the expiry day comes and that's where we let go and practice detachment. Correct. Correct. So attachment is not a bad thing. No. And, and you gave me a beautiful piece of advice a few years ago when I was really struggling with something and you reminded me, oh, Matt, you're attached to that. And, and when I stopped and reflected on it, I realised, oh, my goodness, that's where all the conflict and trouble for me was coming from that particular issue is that I was holding an attachment to it. But, you know, that doesn't make attachment bad per se. It's just about being knowledgeable and wise and, and understanding it. Mm. I chose to be attached to Sally. I chose to, to love her and to have a family with her. And we've got our beautiful children. There's no there's no escaping that attachment there. They're my choices. And, and that's the other thing about life. Your choices define who you are you you get hardship you get good fortune you you get whatever happens and comes at you in life that's beyond your control what you can control is how you choose to respond to it so when great adversity comes and when resilience is required anyone can do whatever they want in my case i went well i've got a responsibility to these beautiful children that sally brought into the world and i promised her i'd look after them so i'm trying to do the best i can with all the choices i make to to um to help them and then i teach them who you are as a person is defined by the choices you make the things that happen to you in life you choose to do one thing or the other and that becomes who you are and i think that's a really valuable lesson well, it's been valuable for me and I'm trying to pass it on well, to them. It's something I've admired in, in, in our conversations about you, Matt, is uh, why I really was excited to get you on as a guest um, because I think you, you bring so much to the table that listeners will be able to sit there and, um, and take away with them. But after Sally's passing, in, I heard you letting go, but in a loving way, and it was a... It was a, an unconditional loving. Um, it wasn't, oh, I am happy can, on the condition that you are here and you exist. And, and I think what really came through was you went into gratitude instead of resentment and it's not fair and you didn't go into that woe is me. Well, you may have initially, but, but mm. down the track, that, that didn't come through. Look... Yeah, I mean, a lot happened. And, and we went through breast cancer and it was a fast, aggressive breast cancer. So um, we had a diagnosis in February or March 2017 and it never went well. Now, of course, while you're going through this process, you don't know what's coming. There's always hope. There could be treatments and, and Sally fought like hell. And her incredible resilience and courage was just remarkable to me. She completely, you, know, you talk about me doing 50 push-ups. Sally decided that she would give her body every opportunity to be the best it could be. And she stopped drinking alcohol. She stopped eating sugar. She looked after her diet. She exercised. And she ended up at age 43 the same way as she was when she was 18. And in incredible, her body was so healthy. She left no stone unturned to try and, to try and, be committed to um, trying to trying to find a way to beat it, and then the grieving. We went through the grieving process gradually, like this nightmare of a slow motion train wreck over mm. eighteen months. So you know the whole uh, Lisa Simpson taught me. There's the uh, denial and bargaining and um, um, uh, 
what well, help me out guys you know the five stages of grieving my, my yeah. mind's gone blank but but you know we went through those things together gradually over a long period of time and, and of the course the final surrendering isn't it yeah there's acceptance the last one's acceptance yeah, acceptance yeah yeah you know and i mean in sally's case she did hold on to denial but it was completely understandable because she had to fight and she said to me if I think this thing's got me, I'm gone. So I must believe I can beat it. And she sustained that all the way through and, and through in unconscionable pain in the end. And she refused to give up. And then she just one day said, the pain's too much, that's enough now. Mm. And, and, it, and it was remarkable how quickly she went after that. It just like took off like a runaway train when her she made her decision that that was enough fighting now but she took it she took it all the way to the end so for me now um look there's a whole lot of it's really interesting because i, I consulted with a friend who was a psychologist all the way through asking him questions about how we manage nurturing our children through losing their mum which was the greatest tragedy that that sally had to come to terms with was her you know that they, they were they were 6 10 and 12 when she died so, you know, Sally spoke to me about imagining her daughter's wedding day without her mum. Mm. These were the nightmares that Sally was going through projecting into the future. Uh, and it was horrendous. And so one of our coping mechanisms to get through this was we realised if we look too deeply into the future, we just saw the abyss. Mm. And you, it was impossible to live like that. So we took the golf thing of stay in the moment, the Buddha thing, and we actually wound back our lives and just almost lived just day to day because we could live in the moment and exist and find a happiness and a courage and a fight. Because if you look too far into the future, it, did, it was awful what we were seeing. Did, did, did doing that give you a greater quality of time with her because you weren't you were in the moment you were you were there with her instead of in the future i i don't know um what it did was give us the capacity yeah, probably the answer is yes because it gave us the capacity to to exist in a nightmare mm. you know um so I suppose, yes. I mean, it, it's weird, Nico, because when you're in it, you don't know what's going to be happening in a month or six or 12 or 18 months. Mm. You know, we were fighting going, if we can find some sort of medication that can hold things for 12 or 18 or 24 months, then maybe another cure will come and we can get on that one. And you, you, you don't know what's coming. They told us it was a nightmare and it was grim. But when you're fighting in there, you... You're not certain. They, did, they didn't exactly know what was coming. And I remember when Sally died, just looking back a week, three weeks, six weeks, all those marker points that we'd just been through, you never would have guessed that she died when she did. I always thought it was going to be some point later than that, but it just kind of got closer and closer and closer. So when you're in the moment going through it all, you just you just we were just day by day in in the moment doing what we can on each day because it was too grim to look too far ahead couldn't how, do it. how, how did you compartmentalize because you you had your wife 
you know, in, in her battle. And then you had your kids and you had your business and you had yourself and you had all these different hats to wear. How, how did you compartmentalise it? Good question. Okay, well, um, you know, priorities. So Sally's the top priority and the kids and our family and then, and then we put other things after that, work, etc., but I'm running a business. So, you know, Sally and I ran the business together. And in fact, Sally loved what she did in the business. She managed all the handicapping administration and 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 she was OCD and she had this perfect spreadsheet. And, and it actually gave her a little focus to just keep doing that thing that she loved doing. So that, that helped. Um, from my point of view, the, the turning point, not the turning point, but one of the key things was, um, I asked myself relatively early on, what can I do to help Sally? How can I support Sally? And there's not a lot, like I couldn't cure it. So I started delving into everything I could do and you know, all the ways I could support her. And one of the things I realized was um, it was a nightmare for both of us, but it was, she was the one having to stare down her mortality. Mm. And so I knew she would go through a lot through hell. And so I decided what I would try and do is, is, is be a rock for her to have an anchor point around. That was just an instinctive, intuitive choice. But I figured if I can just be rock solid here, uh, she's got to go through a lot of stuff. She's got me as, a, as an anchor point to, to, to stick with and that ended up being a really valuable intuitive mm. approach mm. Uh, because that then flowed right through when we were losing Sally when we we're having to talk to the kids about them losing their mum which is a whole other topic we can talk about it was really important actually losing her going through the nightmare of funeral and all these things and then picking up life and continuing afterwards and what I learned was um so I spoke to a friend of Sally's a few months after she died and she'd been through a, a marriage breakup and her child was stressed. She was telling me how her child was so stressed the kid was going to the doctor. And she said to me, I'm stressed, my kid's stressed, everything's stressed. And I realised that my kids were fine and I'd actually been kind of concerned. I was checking in, checking in, checking in, looking for marker points and signs about how they were going and they were coping brilliantly. Now, Sally and I had taken a lot of care in the way we spoke to them and informed them and kept them up to date. But what I ended up realizing when I spoke to this friend was the kids were looking to me for their, is everything okay? And I was you ang You solid. anchored into that rock. And that's right. And, and they were going, All right, dad's okay. Everything's okay here. Well, if you were, uh, and, and you were disturbed, then that would have had a ripple effect and they, they take their lead yeah. from, yeah, yeah they, they take their lead. So that, I mean, in some respects, that was really lucky. It was just, I would recognised it afterwards, but I didn't realise at the time. But that really ended up being really valuable. It, you know, it helped Sally, it helped me, it helped the kids. And, uh, and it was easy for me. I, I have to say, I was a passenger in Sally's nightmare. Mm. Like, I, I'm inspired by her. I, I can't. You know, how does one find resilience now? Well, I only need to look to Sally. 
she went through something unbelievable. I can't wimp out on anything. I can't be gutless and not confront things and 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 do the right thing. And because she was very, she was very noble in that chapter of her life, wasn't she? She was absolutely remarkable, Nico. Um, remarkable, and, and you know, in terms of publicly, she didn't want to be pitied by anyone, so she was pretty. There wasn't a lot of people didn't really know exactly what was going on because she just wanted to to fight. But um, no, she was she was just that's, incredible. That's sort of amazing. The kids looked to you, but you were looking to Sally, so the kids really were okay because it was the way Sally yeah. handled and managed herself as well. But. Uh, I'm wondering how you stayed so grounded and so present when I mentioned the, the feeling of disempowerment for you. And you said earlier you couldn't cure it, you couldn't do anything. The, the feeling of disempowerment, how did, how did that not affect you? But that's accepting what you can't control. Yeah. Or if, you, if, you, if you accept those things in life and, and are honest and realistic about it, that was easy to compartmentalise. Mm. We can't control what's happened. There's so many elements of this we can't control. Let's focus just on the things we can control. What treatments are available? What options are available? How's Sally approaching it? What research can we do? You know, that, that that's how you do it. And and something as brutal and as awful as that really brings all those things into focus. If you're, you know, worrying about getting your golf game better or something that's, you know, fun but not that consequential, you don't, it doesn't matter that much if you're, you know, cut corners on your golf practice, whatever. But when it's life or death, it, it, you, you, you kind of leave no stone unturned. And one of those things was just letting go of things you can't control. It doesn't help you. Well, it forces you. It, it's, it's not what you want to do. It's what the situation demands and requires of you, really, isn't it? Well, I don't think it's even that. It's choices. Mm. You, because some people get put in this situation and they fold. Yeah. You get to choose how you want to react to every circumstance that's put in front of you. I, and I have a question, Maddie. Before you get going, I just need to jump in here. Um, go ahead. You said that the you know based on previous challenges you'd overcome in your life to build this resilience, you had a solid underpinning philosophically of who you are as a human and what your priorities are. Um, who is that? Who'd you find out that you are? Because I, I work with so many people, I'm sure, Nico, you're the same. And um, I hear it time and time again, people come in to say, I have no fucking idea who I am. <laughs> and this is a, and this is a pandemic, super pandemic. This is a pandemic. People don't know who they are because they've, defi- yes. they, instead of creating a definition in themselves of who they are and then acting their choices based on that, we are defined by, I suppose, who people think we are. So who I am around my friends and they tell me or my family tells me or my partner tells me who I are. And this is where people they get caught up. They haven't their own character, which, yes. is, which is what Maddie spent time doing. Mm. Okay, all right. Well, this when I was a kid, I was quite shy. Uh, so um, I was very observant. I was quite introspective and reflective. Um, I had a an emotionally challenging upbringing. Uh, my, my parents broke up when I was six months old. My my dad, I think, was misdiagnosed, like schizophrenic or something, and given shock treatment, which I'm not sure he ever fully recovered from. My so dad had the he opted. Right, this my my dad was like 1969. That they, I think, he was bipolar and. Yeah, and yeah going into some depression and they missed, they, they decided the way to go with shock treatments. And I'm not sure that he ever recovered from that. I think that changed who he was as a person. I didn't know we shared that, Matty. Sorry to, sorry to butt in there. Oh, yeah, that's all right. That's all right. Um, so, so 
my sister and I grew up with my mum and I learnt over time that uh, my mum had some serious issues from her childhood that affected who she were and how she, uh, who she was and how she conducted relationships. So I spent kind of decades trying to figure that out. And I remember as a kid liking myself. I remember as a little kid an experience where uh, I thought I was all right. I liked who I was, you know, sort of poor inner person. And I remember um, my mum yelling at my sister and I, telling us that we were useless. And I, I recall being conflicted about, hang on a minute, your mother, who's a, the most important person in the universe to a child, mm-hmm. telling you that you're no good. And I thought I was okay. So I, that conflict ran through me for a long time. And, and you know, she's really interesting. I, I, I learnt, I, I might be wrong, I'm not qualified to, to assess her, but when she was 16, she had a 19-year-old sister who died of a brain tumour. So they were two kids. Her sister was her best friend in the world and, and the sort of golden child on a pedestal, and their whole family just collapsed around that losing a daughter, which is a nightmare for any parent. Uh, and I don't think my mother ever recovered. She lost her best... At 16, she lost her best friend, and I don't think she ever fully learnt... I think she thought, if I love, it might all get ripped away again. Mm-hmm. And so she put up some barriers to protect herself and that informed the relationships for the rest of her life, including with her kids. You should be a therapist, so, mate. <laughs> well, I, I've been working on me. I've got one patient who seems to have done okay. Um, I, mean, I feel... Kind of, 100% I, I feel, success rate. <laughs> <laughs> the problem is I undercharge. Um, <laughs> As, so, as all good healers do. So, <laughs> <laughs> so that, that, look, but this was decades of trying to unpick stuff, of getting, being in a relationship that's kind of crazy and there's uh, emotional blackmail and all this sort of stuff. And, and, and I, again, I think I was very fortunate because I was intuitive. As a teenager, I selected parents of mates of mine and engaged them as role models. Mm-hmm. Wow. Because I felt like uh, instinctively I didn't have any great uh, parental role models already in my life, so I looked elsewhere. And then I did things like I put an enormous value on friendships. So, uh, but that's explainable when I look at it in hindsight because I didn't really have a huge amount of that family love and security dynamic. And so I went and found that elsewhere. And of course, you know, the members of your true family are not always born under the same roof. You know, that, that's, uh, I think it's Richard Bark. I might be quoting there from Illusions. So um, I put a lot of emphasis on friends and then I formed really deep, meaningful relationships with the parents of some of my best friends. I've got three families in particular who I kind of owe my life to because they were so influential for me as a teenager when I was confused about what was going on around me and then I, I chose them as role, role models. And what I saw was they liked me and respected me as a person and that reinforced me. I actually, I might be, I think I might be okay here. Uh, and so, but what I had to end up doing was I had to consciously choose to reject the views of my mother to make myself okay. So I think that, does that answer your question? I had decades of kind of work around I haven't answered your question. Who am I as a person? We're getting there, so though. This, 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 so this, this introspection, you know, I was, I, I sort of started being philosophical when I was a teenager and thinking about these things. So there's, 
but a few core things to thyself be true okay now that's problematic because you know if you're um you know hitler and he was true to himself that's problematic so it doesn't really work it, it cuts both ways that one but but it is important know thyself love thyself it's very hard to, to love yourself if you don't know who you are as a person and be honest with yourself and then for me that became choosing values that suited who i was so you know I know that I'm pretty wound up about sort of justice and and doing the right thing and being ethically sound and wanting the respect of the people around me according to the values that I hold. So you have a strong moral it's a compass, don't you? Yeah, and and that's just you just that's just who you are or not. And but the important thing is to recognise who you are. Um, the other thing is so that then just deciding choosing ideas to live by. So one of the ones I heard, I'd already was doing this, but someone else framed it for me. I, I think I saw John Bertrand interviewed on telly and he said his father said to him, the four things he required for happiness were a family to love, a job to do, something to look forward to and learn something new every day. They're really, and I looked at that, I thought about that and I was like, yeah, if I've got, and this is after I'd, had met Sally and had a family and you don't need to have kids. It's a family to love could be anything. Mm. It's a sense of community and connection to something. Um, but a family, a job to do, and that doesn't necessarily mean money. It means a sense of purpose, mm. uh, something to look forward to. It's critical. Have things that you aspire to, that you, you want to do. Uh, Nico, our golf events are, are fundamentally sold on hope and aspiration and, so, you know, we put an event up in the future and our customers love it because like, oh, we're going to New Zealand in, uh, or this, you know, uh, and then learn, what? we're doing an event in New Zealand. We'll get back to that off air um, uh, with the travel bubble. Um, and, then, and, then, and then learn something new every day, a sense of inquisitiveness and acceptance that no one knows everything, that you don't know everything. That's okay. You know, I teach my kids, one of the best answers to a question is I don't know. People get afraid to concede they don't. But once you recognise every single person you ever meet knows something you don't know, and then that kind of can generate a nice bit of humility, which is valuable for, for all of us. And and then having that that inquisitiveness ties into that. And 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 it's a, it's a very enjoyable way to live, to have an inquisitive nature, to want to learn from other people and things and, and be aspiring to that. That's a great mindset for you, though. That's a open mind it's that wonder it's that joy it's yep. a placefulness it's a it's that um i'm curious you've got a, a curiosity about you so when you're yes. inquisitive you, you like exploring and experimenting there's no fail or succeed it's just to try this and try that and that's right it's fun i, I learned it from my grandmother who lived to 99 and i noticed that she had a very keen mind all the way to the end of her life mm. and i attributed that partly to the fact that she remained inquisitive she would mm. she would read articles and be thoughtful and talk about issues and topics she, she never became closed in her thinking and and she was in the moment she didn't refer to the past she healthy. she and that that i think that inquisitiveness is really healthy and valuable i love it yeah. i just i just wrote down like if this was a set of values right here and this is really a set of values for a healthy life you've got growth connection and love mission and purpose and hope and curiosity. I'm like, if you live by those values, you're on the right path, I think. 
Well, you get, well they, uh, they work okay for me. Yeah, and like yeah, your grandma, sh- a Shane Keith's warnings of '99. Like that's uh, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Went for the swap yes, switch. She, she didn't throw her innings away like Morty did. I do remember that. Yeah. I remember he wanted the glory shot. And He's he ends forever up the showman. That's what, right. What, what he I, got himself I, out. What I love about Matt, and I reckon Hass, you can hear this and listeners can probably hear it, is, is Matt is emotional intelligence. You can just hear it coming through in, in, in bucket loads. And... You know, a lot of this he, he's learnt from other people, but it's, just, it's such an inherent nature with you, Matty, I think. And in my work, we talk about the three amigos, these three really toxic beliefs that I must be loved, I must be perfect, and I must get what I want. And, and most people see those things as the source of happiness when they're getting what they want, when someone's saying nice things about them, and, and when they're, they're perfect, then, then they're happy. But the antithesis to those is we are all ignorance, we are all incompetence, and we are all mediocre to a degree. And that's again, that's just what you were talking about before. And that I I implore clients to to say, I don't know. We do this amazing um, uh, thing on the whiteboard where I say, where are we? Where are we right now? And, and you'll hear the cogs turning over and they'll go, well, we're in your office. Where's that? In Mornington. Where's that? Da, da, da. Uh, in Melbourne, in Victoria, in Australia, in the Southern Hemisphere. And they get to the universe and where's the universe? Oh, and they're still clawing because they're so afraid of failing or to be seen to not knowing. And I say, well, the answer is here. We are just here. And they're like, oh, I was going to say that, but I didn't, oh, no. <laughs> but it's, it's just a classic uh, way of just really highlighting how people are so afraid of I don't know, where it's such a beautiful sentence. It's, it's a really, it's, it's the beginning of wisdom, probably, mm-hmm. knowing, knowing to be able to say that. Yeah, it's really valuable. Yeah, and I think, you know, having what you said, Nick, is, Maddie's, you know, picked up a lot of stuff from other people. We pick up everything from other people, really. Mm. And, you know, a lot of the work me and Nick do is helping people um, change a lot of these beliefs, which you did yourself, uh, consciously, you said. Like, you know, when our, our mum tells us we're useless, what we mostly do then is we're not really conscious and we just take that on and say, I'm useless. Instead of, mum says I'm useless, let me go and find some other role models and try and see if I am useless or not. We just automatically yeah. just take that on and just go, I'm useless. And then yeah. part of our identity come, becomes that. So I think it's a testament yeah. to that emotional intelligence that you're talking about, Nick, that you can sort of say, hang on, am I useless? Let me go yeah. and speak to some other people and find out. That was that wokeness of Matt. That's why he's on the podcast. The wokeness. <laughs> By the way, I, I don't want to entirely throw my mum under the bus. No, no. She wasn't no, no, no. a nightmare. And she she tried really hard and did the best she could. And she was a single mum raising two kids, which I know how hard that is. Hey, emotional intelligence coming through again. <laughs> I guess so, yeah. So, um, look, at here, all right. I've just remembered another thing. Um, when you talked about the path to happiness, something I learnt for me, and this is every every everyone ticks in a different way, but it's it's really I think it's really important to understand how you tick. A long time ago, when I would start to run into depression, is probably too strong a word, but when I was having bad times, when when I would would get lethargic and 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 start to tend towards unhappiness and get stuck in these kind of places. I recognized once that when I helped somebody else, I felt great. 
And it was a, just in a really valuable uh, learning for me that um, when I'm not going so well, if I go do something for someone else, an act of kindness, I feel better. Mm. And so that becomes selfish for me. It was a way of helping me be happy. And in, in my whiteboard in my office, I've got help people up in the top corner of the, of the whiteboard. Uh, and there's a good example of learning, knowing yourself, knowing who you are, what you're like, what makes you tick and what, what your pathways to happiness are. And then, and then being honest with yourself and doing things in your life that, that help you along those. It's such a good parts. reminder to help people, you know, like you're saying it's selfish and it is, but it's a win-win situation, you know, like when we tend towards depression, you can go towards depression, you can just call it a depressed state. De- that, that depressed state is anger tur- turned towards the self, right? So all, it's all about us at that point. So we're like, you know, yes. why me, me, me? So if we can get outside of me and go and help someone else, then that's how yeah. we can start to get out of these states. And it's a pass it forward thing. Mm-hmm. Like so many people have helped me in my life. We've all been in that situation where we've had people be generous and kind and help us. And uh, it's valuable to remember that. And then when you've got the opportunity to do the same for the other people, it's really satisfying to, yep. to do that. Yeah. I just did an Instagram post, Matty, uh, the other day, and it was six ways in which you can use a lawn to improve your mental health. And the first one was mow someone else's lawn. Yes, so there it is. Service. And then the second one was have a beer. That, that's not the metaphor of... No, that's what, I was, that's what I was about to say. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, would, I would have used cut someone else's grass. If I had to use right, okay, cool. Of course, of so course, of course. Well, your mate's lawn. So it's that act of service. It's, it's that giving. It's, that, it's, that, it's not about me. It's not about... I'm not... Def- um, Ryan and I talk in the podcast all the time about how so many people are working with this sense of deficiency. I am not enough. I don't have enough. And and when you shift away from that and go into giving, you know, and even in your relationships with just with your friends or romantic or with work or whatever, if you can start giving more than you're taking, it does have a an amazing ripple effect. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And just to close that loop from earlier, we spoke about the five stages of grief because people would be like, what are they? I'll just run through them because I looked them up because I couldn't remember off the top of my head. (laughs) Denial. Anger. (laughs) Anger. (laughs) What? (laughs) Bargaining. No, no, no. No, it's not. No, it's not. (laughs) Depression. Depression. (laughs) Acceptance. Oh. There it is. There's a Simpsons episode. Have you guys not seen the famous Simpsons episode where the doctor tells Homer that he's eaten a poison and he's going to die in 24 hours? Oh, and it goes through them really fast? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I've just remembered. I've just remembered. (laughs) And at the end, the doctor goes, acceptance. He goes, oh, well, can't change it. (laughs) So, um, look, we went through that. We went through that. I mean, some of, I remember... Sally was in denial and I, we had a meeting with our GP at one point and he rang me afterwards and said, Sally's in denial. And I said, well, I know, but I know, I know why, because she can't, if she accepted the reality we were being presented with, she would give up and then it would, it would go. So she needed to do that to, to keep fighting. Absolutely. And then there was anger and there were times, you know, I feel grateful that I had the wisdom to know it at the time because she went through anger 
and so, and of course, where's that going to get directed? Well, oftentimes it was at me because I'm I well, love her and I'm, I'm right there and um, that and that was okay. I I, I, I remember copping a barrage once or twice and going, you know what? This is just, we've got to let her have this. This is part of dealing with this whole thing. So it's really valuable to know about those five stages of grieving so that if you encounter them in your life, either in yourself or with someone you love or someone close to you, you, you can you can recognise that that's totally. what's going on. I've got a question, Matty, um, in terms of parenting, and I'm not a parent, um, but... Lots of our listeners are. So I'm curious about after Sally's passing, a lot of parents would go into this controlling. I'm responsible for my kids' happiness. I have to make my kids happy. I have to control them and set all these boundaries and this structure and everything. But and I wonder if you'd let your kids lead because, you know, if they wanted to talk about Sally, whether you just let them or, or, or was it, hey, kids, we're going to sit down and talk about it all the time. What what approach did you take with your kids? Did, did they lead and, or did you lead? We led. Good question. Okay, so, look, there's a... We could do a whole other hour on this question. Um, so, the first... All right, well, there's so many things. The first thing is... We knew Sally was going to die at a point in time. We didn't know when. Well, we're all going to die, but we knew it was going to be sooner rather than later. And so then how do you communicate that to three kids? And, of course, so I started talking to a friend as a psychologist and kind of getting information. And, you know, kids' awareness and understanding about mortality is different. They have different marker points at different ages where they even comprehend what death is and then so we wanted to look after them and nurture them as best we could through that process and so what we did was we were honest and authentic with them throughout but we didn't overburden them with too much information and I was continually going bringing up my mate Fraser hi if you're watching and and saying look we're thinking of approaching it like this intuitively say and I've discussed it and we think this is the way to go and, and, and he would usually say yeah that's great and so we we didn't deny what was happening we didn't pretend like everything's going to be okay but then we didn't overburden with too much and then towards the end when we knew what was really coming we had the realization that Sally will die and these kids will have a point in time where they know she's died and we recognized that if their full realisation of that reality was after she had died, then we were opening the door for all sorts of other potential problems and issues down the track for these kids. They needed to categorically know before she died what was coming. And, of course, this got really complicated by that. She just really started going fast at the end. So we started having conversations with them where we would stage the information so we'd sit down and have a family meeting and say the doctors have run out of medication. That's it. Now, that to a child, that doesn't say that she's going to die. Mm. It just says we've run out of medicine. So we, we, we staged it with this until eventually we had this the most horrific conversation I've ever had where we sat them down and said, mum's going to die. And, and, I, and I, I made sure that the wording of it, Sally was in hospital at this point, like five minutes from where we lived. 
I sat down and said to them, we're going to go and visit mum. We're going to go and see her. But first we need to, I want to have a family meeting and talk about it. And then I took them through everything. You know that mum's got cancer. That's spread into her lymphatic system. It's gone all around her body. And you know the doctors have run out of things they can do. And now the cancer's gone into a whole lot of different organs and they can't cure any of it. And it's got into so many of her organs that, that her body can't sustain it and she's going to die. And, and we needed to make sure that they knew that, that that's what was happening. And so that, you know, this is one of many conversations we had with them through, through a long period. And so then I took them down to see her in hospital. So we led it, Nico, and that was Sally's greatest nightmare was knowing that these kids were going to grow up without a mother. And we tried to do everything we possibly could to make sure that they could be okay. And some of the things were that we, we didn't pretend like anything wasn't real. We didn't pretend she, did, she didn't have cancer. We didn't pretend she wasn't going to die. And then when she did die, and like they saw her an hour before she died, you know, they kissed her. And in fact, that, this was remarkable. It was right before Christmas and there was a Christmas carols thing and Nora was singing in the pub with her friend we went up to the hospital to see Sally and she was not conscious. She was in massive amounts of medication at this point. And I said, you guys want to kiss mum? And I went, I went and kissed her and, and Harry and Nora went and gave her a kiss and Billy didn't do it. Billy's the eight-year-old. Um, Billy's, Billy's the one Sally called Egg Basket. When he was little, <laughs> she, she, he's four years younger than, than the other two. He's a pretty cool little cat. Anyway, Sally says to me one day, see, this one, this is the one. He's got it all. He's handsome. He's clever. He's talented. This is the one. Put all your eggs in this basket. <laughs> so we started, we started calling him Egg Basket. That was our nickname for him. And one year we were talking about Christmas presents. We're like, nah, what are we going to get for Egg Basket? We're, t- we're talking about Egg Basket, this and that for Christmas presents. And we hear this voice behind the couch. I'm right over here, you know. Um, so he, he's just, he's a beautiful, and I think emotional intelligence, I think he's got it in spades. So he didn't kiss Sally. He was a bit afraid. She was unconscious. And then we went home. And then I got the phone call 40 minutes later, Matt, you've got to get to the hospital. And I raced down and, and Sally died. And then I, I spoke to the doctors and said, what's happens now? How, how, you know, how long is she, she, how long is she going to be here? I said to the doctor, how long is she warm for? He said, hours. I said, okay, I've got to give the kids the option to see their mum. So I went back home and told the kids that mum had died. And I said to them, she's in the hospital now. You can see her now if you want to see her. And I, and I said to them, I don't know what I'm meant to be doing here. I don't know what the right thing to do is, but I know she's here. And if you want to see her, you can do that now and you're not going to be able to do it later. And Harry, who was 12, and Nora, who was 10, said, no, you know, no, they've just seen her. And Billy goes, he's six, he goes, I want to go. And so we all went down to the hospital where we'd been an hour before. And Sal's mum was there and Sal's sister and one of Sal's brothers were there. And we went into the hospital and Billy just marched down the hall, went straight into the room, got up on the bed and kissed her. Mm. Uh, He hadn't done it an hour earlier. Mm. 
Um, but I think that's how did we get through by that kind of honest, authentic communication with the kids all the way through. And then afterwards, I, we never pretend Sally didn't live or hasn't died or whatever. We, we just continue to talk about Sally normally right through when she was getting sicker, when she died, after she died, and in the time afterwards. We've just kept everything normal. We're doing rules and boundaries and parenting here and mum's couch and mum's rule and mum's said and this bedtime and mum's car. And, and so we've kept her present in the conversations in our family. And that kind of sense, I think that normality around all of that has been really one of the things that's been really uh, valuable for these kids in getting getting through this. Uh, I'm not crying, house. You're crying. It's just, uh, oh, I am crying. <laughs> I'm tearing up. <laughs> yeah. It's brutal. Like, it's just, yeah. and you know, when I said to the kids, the mum's going to die, Billy just comes up to me and says, but Dad, I'm only six. Mm. You know, like, it just, uh, you wouldn't, it's, it's anyway. Yeah. It is, and that's what we said when we went through it, Nico, and yeah. we just... It's this sort of nightmare happens to someone else, but when it's happening to you, you just you just deal with it. People said to me, "How do you deal with it?" I'm like, "I don't know. You just do. You just you do what you need to it's do." It's not like yeah, you have a choice not to deal through it or go through it because that's what's happening, you know. And I, right. I think it's that's it's right. it's you know, hats off to you for you know having because it, it's so I'm sure easy for us to lean towards telling kids because we're we're so sheltered from from death in our society and it's as opposed to other cultures and you know it, it, it's so easy for us to just say no no everything's fine and there's you know rainbows and blah, blah this is all happening but it's like you know that there needs to be a real uh living in reality there which sounds like you know what you did very methodically with staging it and understanding where they're at and and having the advice from the psychologist but also just being just raw and open and and having them know exactly what's happening i think that's the harder thing to do in the moment like you said it was a nightmare but it also gives them such a a better grasp of you know what what death is and that it's going to happen to all of us at some point and it happened to her maybe too soon but it's going to happen to all of us yeah that's right yeah Yeah. so um I've got two yeah. questions, Matty, and, and sure. they're, they're a bit of, uh, and, and it's coming from a genuine ignorance. Did, did when you keep saying Sally, you know, um, was, was talking about she's not going to be there at the kids' weddings, all that sort of stuff. Did, did she? Was there any talk of? Did she blame herself on any level? Like, did she, was she beating herself up for feeling like a failure? No. Uh, great. Okay, and when she passed, and and once again, I, I can't imagine this, but. I've heard from other people. Did you experience any relief on any level? And was that was that a really, if so, was that a weird emotion to experience? Okay, that's a good question. Look, um, there was so much pain that there's your option on relief is it's unconscionable pain. So. I didn't feel much relief. No, I didn't really feel relief. Mm. But I do understand the importance of not feeling guilty about how you feel. Mm. My father passed away four weeks ago. He'd been very sick five years ago. It was not a surprise when he died, he was 80. And I remember at one point not feeling super sad on the night that I learned he died. And then I remember a temptation to feel guilty about 
not feeling that sad. And remember, and I thought, well, guilt's not really useful to us. It's kind of a wasted emotion. You know, you either do or you don't. Um, but so, so I, no, I didn't feel that much relief, Nico. It was a nightmare losing mm-hmm. Sally. Uh, yes, it was better that she died than to live in that amount of pain. I guess the important thing is is in grief. There's 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 times when people will feel guilty about feeling particular things, and it's probably important to recognise that that doesn't that doesn't help you. It's okay to feel this way or that way, and and that and, yeah, and the thing so is going through a, a grief process. Well, yeah, I'm not. I just don't judge myself about that. Yeah. I mean, grief. Here's a whole other hour dealing with the grief. Like, I think I did a really good job and I'm, I feel just lucky and intuitive that I let the sadness in. There was a lot of it. I also let it out. Mm. It still turns up. It turns up less frequently. I, I, this sadness will be with me till the day I die, I've realised. Every time there's a significant event, every time one of my kids graduates from school or uni or gets married or has a, you have a Mother's Day or whatever, it's going to come back again. And what I learnt in dealing with the grief is let it in. Don't push it away. It's okay. Just open the door and let it come in. And you know what? It'll come through. And if you leave the back door open, it'll leave as well. And that's okay too. You don't need to feel guilty because you're not feeling sad right now. You know, they're important things in processing that's, grief. That's amazing to hear you put it into that context mm. and I think listeners are really going to resonate with that and, and you know, we are talking earlier about suffering and unnecessary suffering and we're all human, we're all going to experience suffering, we're going to lose someone or something, things are going to happen but it becomes unnecessary as you say when you start compounding it and beating yourself mm. up and judging yourself <laughs> and holding on to it. Oh, there's two, yeah, there's well, two, sorry, Matt, there's two like key things you said there. And I think anyone going through grief and especially guys, um, because we're, you know, very emotionally unintelligent, uh, a lot of us, is that honor what you're feeling, even if that's nothing, right? Because that's, it just, it's, you need to honor it's valid. that. It's valid, right? And then, yeah. and then, but when it does come, let it all the way in, let it all the way out. I think those two are just so key with and the, the way that you've handled things. And, and I think the listeners can take a lot away from that. That'd, that'd be awesome. If someone hears this and it helps them, great. I, I guarantee uh, it will. It's helped me. I'm listening. It's helping me. <laughs> I think I think we're all better people for having spent this time yes. with you, Matty, and I'm a better person for having had you in my life. So it's a genuine honour to, you, to be able to call you a friend and um, to beat you out on the golf course. That's probably one of the <laughs> well, let's, let's Let's maybe finish up by talking a little bit about golf. Like, let's... Keeping with the maybe lens of you know things that you know help us through the the mental and emotional side of our lives, what does what does Social Golf Australia mean to you, Maddie? You know, and, and it seems to be your a real passion of yours. Well, I met. Sal, but I don't know if you're calling me a hobo, Nico, because in in Sally's eulogy, I referred to the night that I met Sally, and I looked like a hobo. Yes. So. I've taken on this hobo identity because of that story. Um, Chisel-chested hobo, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't, I don't know if it was back then, but anyway. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to comment on that. Um, I, I, she was an actor and I was a musician and we were both broke. And we met each other and and it, it was just, I from when I saw her, I knew I was wanted 
to marry her. I would marry her before I even spoke to her. And then she got up and sang on a stage. It was at a birthday party and she was amazing. And and uh, that that was, so we just met each other and it, and, and, it, and it really clicked. And then we were two out of work artists with no money. What are we going to do? So we decided we would start a business together. We did a SWOT analysis, strengths and weaknesses. And one thing led to another and we started a copywriting consultancy. Then I ran a golf event for mates because all my mates were getting married and having careers and we were playing less golf and weren't seeing each other. So I organized a golf trip to uh, Cobram Baruga. And I thought, oh, I've been on these kind of boys golf trips before. You can do it better. And, and so I just did the best one that I could. And then we did another one. And, and then uh, 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 one of the guys on the trip, Sam, owned a, 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 um, a website consultancy. And he said, have you ever thought about doing this as a business? I went, no. He said, come and meet me sometimes. So I went and met with Sam. And he said, have a website. And so I'm indebted to Sam for mentoring me and starting me in business. My mates didn't have handicaps, so I, got, I qualified as a handicapper. And then we just started running some golf events. And so we had two businesses, this tiny little golf business and our copywriting consultancy. And I loved the golf and just worked on it and, so that was, that and was grew Bush it. Ranger golf, wasn't that it? was Bush Ranger Golf. That was the first and, and I loved it. And then what it grew to be was the fun of community. And fundamentally, what are you doing when you're organizing and hosting a golf event? You're, you're, you're arranging for a bunch of people to come together and have some fun, whether it's old mates or people meeting new friends. And this, so what does it mean to me? This is the big thing that it means to me. Firstly, it's, it's created something that um, feeds the kids, puts shoes on their feet. Uh, it reflects my values really well, and I'm really happy about that. Uh, it, it, one of the goals of business is providing a lifestyle, and I haven't quite done that because there's still too much work to do, but we're working on that. And then the satisfaction I get from it, from what it delivers, and... Uh, it delivers friendships and community. And one of the significant things, one of the amazing things for us is we've got people who've come into our golf events and made new friends. So Nico talked about Gabby Doran and meeting the amazing Neil Hocking, who was an incredible friend of mine through golf. But I've seen so many people come into the events that we organise and make lifelong friends. Mm. And this is one of the incredible takeaways of the things that we do is is... That, that sense of community that we put a really high value on. The other thing I love is um, Sally and I started this thing from a home office. We applied our values to it and uh, Sally loved the handicapping. We did 29 handicaps in the first year, 14 odd years ago. And this year it's like over 4,000 and we're one of the biggest wow. golf clubs in the country. And that has just been friendly personal service from a family business started in a home office People can ring us and we give them fast service and they tell their friends and they get a handicap as well. And and really, you know, uh, Sally loved that. Sally and I did it together, but she took over the handicapping business in the period where it grew from three or 400 through to over 3,000 people. Uh, and uh, that's really satisfying. And, of course, it's fun on a daily basis because you're just helping people do something that's fun and enjoyable and healthy and good for them. It's really satisfying, you know, you know, time and again chatting to people on the phone and helping them do that so it also yeah, gives us something to look forward to which you were talking about earlier you know the barn yeah one of those or, values beautiful yeah that's right that's right yeah so it's really that's really satisfying it's an opportunity in business or in life or what you do if you choose values that suit you and, and help you with your happiness you can reflect them in the work that you do in the business that you run which i'm sure that's 
what you guys are doing as well. So yeah, well, we're, you know, we're just doing that. We've <coughs> we've just opened this new building, and and uh, the the yeah, it's a mental health um, you know, clinic. People could call it, but it's it's more than that. We want to create a sense of community. We want people to come and just have a cuppa and read a magazine. They don't have to come in for an appointment. It's just somewhere we can. If you're in town, just duck in, and there'll be someone else here, and you can have a conversation. And yeah, who knows where it goes. So. That sense of community is really important. And I think, you know, one of the dangers of a modern society and city life now is people getting more disconnected. Mm. And we've really recognised with the golf events, we, we kind of pick up strays. There are people who find our events and it becomes really meaningful to them because they find a sense of connection to a community that they're not finding elsewhere in their life. Well, it's a tribe. So, so, it's a tribe, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, the tribe is also based on a set of values that are about inclusiveness and uh, good values and good character and these kind of things. And, and of course, then like attracts like. So what we find is if we set the, the boundaries around the values for who we want to be and how we are, people who are cheats or this or that, they, they, if they ever get near our tribe, they find they don't fit, they mm-hmm. don't like it. Whereas people who feel and reflect the same sort of values get attracted and, to and social golf is, social golf events are renowned for cheats you know they, they'll, they'll <laughs> come in and because they, they, all they want to do is win the prize or take home a new putter or whatever but with Matty's events it's it's golf is sort of secondary yep. a lot of the times it's it's more about yeah I can't wait to play with this person or that person or that course it's it's the vehicle for creating yeah, new connections yeah really yeah it also gave me a sense of purpose when I first joined it and found it you know I I sort of joined in, I think, 2012, and sort of there was only a couple of events left. Um, but the next year, I set a goal to win the Order of Merit. So I committed to playing every event, and I got up early, and I travelled, and I practised, and I, you know, it gave me a real sense of purpose outside of my work, um, which was really healthy for me. And I, I won the Order of Merit at the, on the last event, and you know, it's something I still carry with me, still reflect on, and and it was, yeah, it was all because of what Matty created. So love it. Love it. I'm going to have to get involved, I think. I need to play a bit more. Well, they, do a Thailand, they do a Thailand event, so maybe you could be the Thailand manager. <laughs> unfortunately, unfortunately, yes, we, we, we've got a Thailand. We do two Thailand events in March, and next March, I don't think we're going to be in Thailand. Yeah, I'll be, I'll be home plans. by them anyway. That's all right. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right, so you're, I don't I don't even know the background. So are you permanent you're not living in Thailand permanently. Con- con- yeah, no, we we uh came over here at the start of March and so we've been here for well seven, eight months or whatever that is. So but we'll come home in okay. November, uh is the plan at this stage. Okay. Set up well, set, we'll, set up shop back in Melbourne. Okay, well I'm hoping we'll have a golf tournament back in Thailand in March twenty two. We'll see. Yep. See how things go. Great. Uh, Maddie. that was a fantastic uh, chat. We uh, thank you so much for coming on. Um, like Nick said, I think so listeners are going to take so much out of this, both Nick and I have, and um, grief something that touches us all at, in different points of our life, and hearing your experience is um, only going to help people in a positive way. So thank you so much. We uh, appreciate you a lot. Good on you, Ryan. Thank you so much for having me. Nico, thank you so much for having me. I look forward to seeing you on a golf course very soon when we're allowed back out there. I've just bought a house that backs onto Carrington Park or Bayview, so you're going to have to come down when lockdown ends and we'll, we'll go and play uh, a lazy 9 or 18. I'm up for jumping the back fence and doing a bit of that. <laughs> awesome. Let's go. Let's Love go. it. All right. All right, cool. everyone. Thank you. We'll see you all next week.
Peace. Thank you for tuning in to the Woke Blokes podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe to the show. Also, leave us a five-star rating. We thank you so much, and we'll see you all next time.